Hey, podcast fans, this is Chris Webster, founder of the APN, and I just want to thank you for downloading this episode. Please consider becoming a member of the APN if you're not already and helping us make more great shows and get them out to the world. Head over to arcpodnet.com slash members or click the link in the show notes. On to the show. You're listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. Welcome to The Dirt, a podcast about archaeology, anthropology, and our shared human past. I'm Anna. And I'm Amber. And if you want to support The Dirt and the outreach that we do, um, you can head over to patreon.com slash the dirt podcast and subscribe at any tier that you desire. Um, there is a lot of bonus content <laughs> over there to be yeah. had. It's uh, It has piled up. It and, just keeps growing. Yeah. And many, many thanks to Alyssa and, gosh, I hope this is right, Lena. I messaged them on Patreon, but uh, our most recent patrons. You can also support the show by purchasing merch over at thedirtpod.com. Just click the Dirt Shirts link at the top of the page. You can also sponsor an episode topic of your very own for a minimum donation of 25 bucks. although people have kicked us more than that wild um and hey you can always 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 just come hang with us keep listening and tell folks about the show because we're we're thrilled to have you here yeah um and this week i have no idea what we're doing because i'm still tired from watching avatar and i needed to get away from my computer so i went to the west coast without it (laughs) (laughs) oh no problem i got you bud (laughs) I I really have like minimal idea what's happening. Um, It's okay. You're going to like this one. I think. (laughs) Cool. I I mean, I like like most of them. Yeah. And really the episodes that I haven't liked are ones that I've done. See Avatar. (laughs) No, don't see Avatar. That's the whole point. So I wanted to do a topic that was maybe a little on the lighter side since our Apocalypto and Avatar episodes were something of a heavy lift for you. Um, I won't say there's no big thinky thoughts involved in this week's episode because the the clown horn of Orientalism (laughs) will definitely go off at some point. Um, (laughs) But this week, I wanted to actually take some time to look into something that we've asked several times on the show. What did the past smell like? Oh, that's also like a good Quora question. (laughs) Yeah. What did the past smell like? What are smells in the past? Yeah. So we usually ask that question and then go, probably not great. Um, and Pretty bad, move on. Yeah. Which, like, we can say without value judgment. Like, no. Just, like, just it, people produce smells. We're, yeah. We're, we're pretty smelly. Um, but not this time. So I'm going to prepare for some theater of the nose. Thank you for oh, saying God. it correctly. Are we going to... We're not going to wild out too much, don't worry. But, like, are we going to get into, like, the absolutely absurd language that... No. Perfume, perfumier, perfumers use? Like, no, but we are going to get into something stupid. else that's really interesting, but um, has, uh-huh. a, has a silly, I think, kind of a silly name. But not yet. 
So okay, I'm gonna keep yawning. So I know we're I both so tired. I'm so sorry, everyone. Everyone. <laughs> so there are going to be some instances in this episode where we have actual data analysis and research to talk about, and other what? times, yeah, and other times <sighs> where we're going to be much more speculative. Oh, thank God. So first, I thought we'd talk about our sense of smell from an evolutionary perspective and then take the speculative route to think about the Paleolithic. Then we'll wrap up in the second half by discussing some experimental recreations of past scents. Oh, wow. Yeah. Great. Well, excellent pitch meeting. I co-sign on this episode. Ah, perfect. We can proceed. (laughs) So the Paleolithic of the whole world this is a really long chunk of time and the earth then was if not more biodiverse it's probably it was more biodiverse than it even is now well yeah yeah we're getting less biodiverse by the day my dude i know humans of several varieties lived in many many different landscapes all of those landscapes would have had smellscapes scentscapes of their own And I'm sure there were seasonal changes, too, day-to-day changes. My point is we can't access what the deep past would have smelled like for everywhere and every period. But we can think about the kinds of scents that might have been common. So let me talk about smell evolution, and then we will speculate. So first of all, how does smell work? Sometimes it doesn't. People can be anosmic for any number of reasons, uh, including most recently <laughs> symptoms of COVID-19. But, yeah. but for our purposes, let's say that we're talking about the average non-anosmic with nosmic? Would that be nosmic? It would be nosmic. Person's sense of smell. So someone someone who can perceive smell. Step one, we inhale through our nose, drawing in <laughs> roughly zillions of molecules that happen to be around our face man i inhaled zillions of molecules yesterday you probably did i was out volunteering and i was Mm -hmm. wearing a mask and then everybody left so i took off my mask and immediately started sneezing (laughs) oh the pollens (laughs) Uh, those molecules are received in our schnozzes by olfactory receptors in our nasal cavity so this is from an article in science daily quote um Okay, yes. I'm going to I'm going to quick question. Yep. Nasal cavity. Mhm. Is that a nostril? Is that inside our skull? Is that in the is it in the cartilage of our nose? It's the space inside your two nostrils but then also in your vomeronasal region which is if you picture a little cartoon skull, it's the uh-huh. triangle nose. Your vomer actually sits just sort of wedged between. Don't talk about my vomer. <laughs> oh, sorry, I don't. I don't mean to uh, lay your vomer bare in front of our <laughs> listeners. No, but it, it's like sits between the bones of that that are like in the front of your face. If, if you want to get into this phenoid and the ethmoid bones, we can. But the nasal cavity is just the whole space that your nose takes up. Okay. Okay. Great. Okay. Thank you. So, quoting from Science Daily, quote, We have about 4 million smell cells in our noses, divided into about 400 different types. There is tremendous genetic variability within and between populations for our ability to detect odors. 
Each smell cell carries just one type of receptor or lock on it. The smell floats through the air, fits into the lock, and then activates the cell. End quote. Okay, so let me, let me, I'm going to explain that. This sounds fake. <laughs> it does. It does. Because it involves, you know, transmission of information to our brains, which always feels fake because it's like, and then the brain receives it as little electric signals yeah, because true. a molecule fit into another molecule. Uh, yeah, I guess we are just like twitchy meat. Yeah. Like that's oh, all we really are. Didn't need that phrase this morning. So these smell receptors, they're special structures within groups of neurons that are kind of like a skeleton key for specific groups of molecules. So instead of there being an individual receptor for every possible configuration of, of odor molecule, because when you smell things, you are just smelling tiny bits of whatever that thing is. So like if you're smelling grass, you are smelling, your nose is taking in tiny, tiny particles of grass that are just sort of floating in the air on a molecular level. Instead of there being an individual receptor for every possible configuration of molecule, which would be, I don't know, millions, billions, there are receptors that will bind to families of odor molecules, things that share similar makeups. Remember when we talked about spice and we talked about this was, I think, in the food episode that was live or live show. Like like heat spice. Yeah, like heat spice. Um, Yeah. I told you that Capsaicin is very similar to another molecule, vanillin, is in the vanillin family. So it's different for capsaicin because that's something that you sort of feel rather than taste. It it gets to the brain differently. It's, a, it's perceived as heat by the brain and not a smell. But it's the same idea that there are families of molecules that have a little matching Lego part in your nose. Is this, is this why... Is this connected to... How Parmesan and yes. feet and vomit jelly beans like have the same. They have the same chemical. Yeah. Chemical going on, but it's like context. It, exactly. Yes. Yeah, is so, it like that or is it not like that? That's and part of is it. This an, that, is, okay. that is part of it. Yes. I was told this wasn't going to be big thinky. Well. And you are blowing my whole vomero nasal region over here these olfactory receptors so the little little skeleton key yeah are directly connected to the olfactory bulb which is a structure that sits in the front of your brain it's just a bundle of brain cells up in our our four brains that information can then also not always but it can be sent to the amygdala for further processing and the amygdala is a structure that's closely tied to memory and emotion and so that's why smell can be such a strong trigger for memories because those things are directly connected okay so humans primates in general but especially humans evolved to have very flat faces compared to many other in fact most mammals we depend super prognathic yes we are not prognathic good job good vocab thanks we depend on our eyesight and we've evolved to depend on our eyesight much more than our sense of smell jokes on you evolution my eyesight's bad my smell is is where our eyes are up front yeah that's yeah exactly it's it's so that we have this overlapping stereo field of vision whereas an animal like a horse has eyes on either side of a big old snoot and doesn't look forward the same way that we do we depend on eyesight much more than our sense of smell just thinking about all the senses in toto um to process our environment 
right? And so that's the reverse of, for example, what a dog has going on. Dogs have long snouts, or, you know, they did before selective breeding made things weird. Yep, can confirm. Calypso has snout. Ow! Oh. She's now full of teeth. (laughs) Did she bite you? Yeah, I tried to look at her snout, and she's like, no. (laughs) I respect her autonomy. So dogs have a sense of smell, depending on the dog, up to 100,000 times better than ours. Which is, like, if you really think about it, just existing in a world of that much smell perception, I can't even really fathom it. Because my brain's not my meant my dad to. can. I mean, I also have a really sensitive nose. You do. And, like, that's that's enough. That's too much. So our flat faces show that for whatever reason, sight was more valuable to our early primate ancestors than smell. Because that's what was passed on. So now let's think about the smell of arbitrarily 200,000 years ago. We've got Neanderthals in Western Europe and the Levant, Homo sapiens in Africa and points east, and Denisovans somewhere, wherever they were, besides Denisova Cave. I don't know. So what are some elements of smell? Smelements that would Ooh. probably have been common across these populations, right? Because we can okay. think of these are these are people living in an environment. So yeah, if they used fire, probably things would smell smoky. Yeah, people would well, smell smoky. Also, because also you wouldn't necessarily have like seasoned wood, like not necessarily. I'm saying people can season wood, like it's no, but you might just but, be collecting fuel from. Around. Yeah, you might be using like greener wood mm-hmm. and then that'll have very smoky. Very smoky. Yeah, and it'll have the the resin and stuff. And you might be yeah. deliberately doing that because we know that Neanderthals and well and humans, but but that people used tree bark and extracted adhesive from it. Right? So it would need to be green wood for that to work. Um yeah. there would of course be human body smell, which mm-hmm. Depends on lots and lots of factors, but in general, things would smell like kind of stinky people. Here's one. Here's a question. I'm ready. Um, I've been researching this for, for a day job, so this is great. Ask me the question. Okay, so human, human body smell is mm-hmm. informed by a lot of things, including three, main, by three, three major categories of things. Yeah. Okay, and uh, one of those categories is diet. Mm-hmm. It's like what you have eaten. Correct. Um, we probably smelled different probably i mean again like these would have been a huge mix of environments so diet would have also i mean there there would have there would have been like very i mean there would have been variation around like among groups but i'm saying like if i live so like me so two hundred thousand year ago amber Mm. um would smell different Probably because I would have been eating totally different things. Well, you, yeah, you certainly would have wouldn't have been eating the variety of food that you eat now because yeah. our food system is so global. But you would have been eating a. I'm not saying you wouldn't have been eating a variety of foods. It would just look very different. Yes. Yes. Um, Great. Yeah. Um, the other, the, two, but that's just like something really, like, really interesting to yeah. think about. Is that like me going out into the woods and like. But being smelly, like after camping, like that's not what I would have smelled like 200,000 years ago. Probably not. No. Yeah. In case you're wondering, the other two major components of of what we smell like are genetics and your microbiome, your gut flora, etc. And what they're eating. 
Okay. Yeah. So in addition to kind of a smoky yeah. smell, if people are using fire, yeah. uh, if they are using fire, they're probably cooking food. So there would be yeah. cooked food smells, whatever yeah. that might be. So meat smell or sort meat of smell. roasting tubers or something like yeah. that. There would like probably be smell of, of waste. So uh, I, wet garbage. I, yeah, I mean, I mean human waste as well. So I don't, I don't know to what extent people tended to kind of partition off a latrine, you know? Yeah. Hyenas do. Remember that from a thousand years ago? Oh, yeah. Hyenas yeah, in caves yeah, had like yeah. a specific toilet location. Yeah, great. they had their little box. Yeah. Um, it, I mean, it would make sense. I mean, it would make sense that, that we would have latrines because like we're pretty clever animals. Yeah. And we don't want to attract like, illness. Predators. Well, you don't want to attract like predators, but you also the, the whole idea of illness and I don't know. Um, we seem to have lost that knowledge for a big chunk of time if we had it in the I, first place. Are you talking about like like sedentary yeah. stuff and like urbanism? Yeah, I know. It's not the same. But, but that's when there's like overwhelming factors. Yeah. But but during but but during this time, like there's um like we're pretty good at like not not pooping where not, we like, eat. Not and not pooping where we drink. Yeah. And and like yeah. that. Even before, well before any like idea of germ theory, there were like there were understandings around um, mm. sanitary um, needs, mm-hmm. and so. Um, but also, I'm thinking like when the the word midden really brings a tang to my nose. Yeah, of just thinking about like. Yeah, animal remains, or you know, if it's coastal, it'd be kind of fishy. Thinking, just yeah, like, yeah, like like rancid, uh, like shellfish. Yeah, but you know, maybe um, maybe the disgust factor was less, or maybe people put their trash downwind from. Oh yeah, but that also would have been localized. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, like your trash heap would be stinky. Whoa, in summer, my god. Um, animal smells and plant smells. Right, so if you're downwind of a herd of animals, you probably know about it. Yeah, um, and plants. Oh, no, sm- baby animal smells. Baby animals smell nice. With the baby and the snips. Um, <laughs> and then the plant smells. You got, you know, like if um, you walk into a pine forest on a hot day. No, I know that kind I of know thing. Plants. I'm aware of plants. This is for the listener. Got- Theater of the nose. So those are the things that I could think of that would be sort of common no matter where you looked or when you looked in the Paleolithic. And then from there, you can sort of build out if you're talking about a specific region, you can kind of say, okay, we know they were doing this, this, this. So maybe it would have smelled like this, this and this. So this will be a speculative kind of model building way to think about smell, which is a legit way of approaching the past, but it's... I like the idea of you making a model. A sniff model? Like, ah, the poo smell. Enhance. <laughs> and it's like trying to like... You know I would. Balance it all. Uh, <laughs> so, <laughs> speaking of unpleasant smells, the study that Science Daily reported on that I quoted earlier, which was actually pub- published in the journal Chemical Senses, uh, focused on one specific smell, and that is the smell of the compound androstenone. So Amber, do you want to use your classical education and context clues to tell me about androstenone? Androstenone. Yeah, it sounds like um, a delicious like ricotta dish, but no. Just sounds manly. Mm. Mhm. So 
This is is it manly? It is a a, a male funk. Yeah. So I'm going to oh. quote from that 2015 Science <laughs> Daily write up again. I wasn't imagining that in my my Paleolithic quote. Most this is really interesting because of what it tells us about uh, the ability to smell among different human groups, different like flavors of human. Okay, like. The ability to produce a scent? No, or, the ab- sorry, the ability to perceive, it. The, the ability okay. to process the okay. scent, like you have the receptor for it. Your brain says, yeah. yep, I recognize that. Okay, so quote, okay. most receptors can detect more than one smell, but one called OR7D4, so OR stands for olfactory receptor, and then it's just, oh. it's got a label. Sounds like a Star Wars robot, but okay. It does sound like a Star Wars Enables us to detect a very specific smell called androstenone, 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 which is produced by pigs and is found in boar meat. I think it would be androstenone. Yeah. If it's if it's like modeled after testosterone. Yeah. The emphasis lands on. Okay. Androstenone. People with different DNA sequences in the gene producing the OR7D4 receptor respond differently to this smell. Some people find it foul, some people find it sweet, and others cannot smell it at all. Oh. It's like, it's the same thing as asparagusic acid, which is, believe it or not. That's not a real word. It is. It is. It's the compound in asparagus that makes your pee smell funny. But some people don't produce it, some people don't smell it, and some people produce it but don't smell it. People's responses to androstenone can be predicted by their DNA sequence for that receptor and vice versa. So researchers studied the DNA that codes for that receptor from over 2,200 people from 43 populations around the world, many of them from indigenous groups. They found that different populations tend to have different gene sequences and therefore differ in their ability to smell this compound. One possible explanation of this selection, so whether this is useful or not for our environment, surviving in our environment, is that the inability to smell androstenone was involved in the domestication of pigs by our ancestors. Androstenone makes pork from uncastrated boars taste unpleasant to people who can smell it. So if you can't smell it, it's fine. So that that might have been a reason that pigs were continued to be selected for food because it didn't taste awful yeah okay yeah pigs were initially domesticated in asia where genes leading to a reduced sensitivity to androstenone have a high frequency so it just was the way it was yes so so okay so the 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 genes preceded domestication correct it wasn't that like we gotta choke down this pig meat. No, 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 no. Let's stop. No, like no. The okay. gene came I just, first. I just want to make sure. And for yeah. those people who didn't have the ability to perceive androstenone, found pig meat palatable, and so okay. And so in other populations where there were wild pigs, nobody wanted to. Maybe like some people, people did, did, but I. I mean, but there wasn't like a. <laughs> A universal push towards Correct. domesticating pig meat because there were there was enough of a an understanding that like it tastes gross if it's from a boar. Yeah. And okay. Yeah, so probably people still hunted pigs, but they avoided boars, maybe. Mm. You want to eat males because in general, because the females because produce males don't 
but because females produce other things, including additional pig. (laughs) And so like if, if like half, roughly half the population of the stuff you're breeding tastes gross, tastes disgusting and doesn't give you anything else. Like you you should, yeah, maybe you should focus your efforts elsewhere. Yeah. This is fascinating. Perfect. The research group also looked into the genetic code for this receptor in Neanderthals and found that they had similar receptors. They would have been able to smell androstenone. The Denisovans, we don't know what they look like, and they're only known from a tooth and a finger bone, but their DNA, so Denisovan DNA, showed a unique mutation not seen in humans or Neanderthals that changed the structure of the androstenone receptor. But Shut up. I I won't. Thanks to some genetic modeling, we know that despite the mutation, the Denisovan nose functioned pretty much like our own. Both of our close relatives, like our early human ancestors, would have been able to detect this particular smell. So I guess that's something to add to the scent profile. It's boar funk. And only boars produce it? I think it's a specific territory marking thing that happens. Like, it's especially, like, in their urine and stuff. And they do that thing where they, like... Um, paw into the ground and like really rough up the ground to spread yeah. that smell around. I think it's related to that. Ugh. Not a pig expert. Ugh. I am not Dr. Seuss. Oh my God. Get out. <laughs> Get out. <laughs> Seuss is the All right. Latin name for pig. Oh yeah. You know, now it's not funny. Well, some people don't know their taxonomy. All right. So let's do some attempts to, Sample the scent profile or headspace, the smellscape internal of past people. So this is actual methodology. We're going to talk about real methods that people are using now. Smell science. Which is very, very cool. So apart from just thinking about smell, um, how are researchers trying to access smells of the past? Uh, Well, thank goodness for an uh, article that came out in 2020 by uh, Rose Malik at the University of York. That article is entitled, Does Archaeology Stink? Detecting Smell in the Past Using Headspace Sampling Techniques. Listeners and I um, (laughs) may be wondering, what is headspace analysis? Read on, my friend. (laughs) Great, great. Okay, so um, excellent question, me and also you. Um, It boils down to this. Smells are perceived from any given material that produces volatile, volatile, volatile uh, odor molecules, uh, aka molecules easily excited with exposure to energy, like heat. Uh, So in theory, you can take an archaeological sample, heat it inside a closed vessel to get any volatile compounds excited and airborne, then collect the resulting vapor lightly perfumed air um you can then test that air with a gas chromatograph machine uh, which gives you a chemical fingerprint of all the components in the sample since there's a large body of research out there on what different molecular compounds smell like you can compare that to your sample to see what sort of scent profile you've got um so all of this sounds like something that the DNA cartoon in Jurassic Park would explain. <laughs> it might. Like it yeah. sounds like 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 it just sounds 
like science fiction. Uh, so we'll link to that article, which spends a lot of time considering sampling methods, challenges of sampling in the field, and proposes a set of terms to use for this relatively new area of study. It's a great article. It's very but, thorough. That's awesome. Yeah. So there's a lot of information there if you're interested in the nuts and bolts and sense thereof. <laughs> um, but to wrap this bit up, I'm going to quote from Malik. Quote, the headspace sampling technique demonstrates that smell in field archaeology is no longer intangible, ethereal, invisible, or incorporeal. However, field archaeology requires a further evolution to allow odorous empirical evidence, <laughs> sample collection, and conceptualization to enter its sphere in order to dynamically and multidimensionally support broader themes in religion and ritual, gender, leadership, trade, and communications. To summarize, the examination of smell presents clues into cognitive adaptations of past cultural constructs, which might otherwise escape our current spatio-temporally distanced comprehensions. Yeah. So I wanted to just sort of translate that because that's a little jargony, but it's just so sort of... pause quote? Pause quote, yes. And so it's just the idea of sort of like smell relativism, like the idea that different places in the past smelled in a way that we can't really uh, necessarily get at all the way because there are smells that some people notice. Like when you go to a new place and yeah, certain smells, smells that are that, something that stand out to you, yeah. but that for somebody who lives there all the time, it doesn't mean anything. Right. It's just, it's just part of the background. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, for somebody that's been living in that pine forest their whole life, they don't smell the pine forest until they leave and come back. They don't smell the forest for the trees. Yeah. Yeah. So um, I'm going to round out this quote. Um, quote, headspace sampling can provide can bring tangible evidence of odor to extend our understanding of sociocultural development from its earliest manifestations of human existence into the present day. Instead of discussing empirical and ephemeral arguments separately, we can now combine them to consider nuance within narratives together to fortify, refine, or redefine understandings of past cultures. In other words, we can find and engage with smell in the past as primary source evidence, end quote. Yeah. Um, so that's a way to access smell in the past with like temporal limits because volatile compounds become less so over time. Um, but this is something where we can actually access it. Sometimes, uh, yeah. Which, well, I mean, there's the capacity to access it. Mm-hmm. Like that, it's not unknowable. But let's take a quick ad break and then look at some of the ways that researchers are trying to recreate smells of the past. It's Chris Webster again. If you haven't checked out our new parent website, culturomedia.com, then please do. Culturo is spelled K-U-L-T-U-R-O, and it's where we promote all of our live events. We've got one coming up in November. Check it out over at Culturo when it gets posted. If it's already happened and you're hearing this, then as a member, you can go to your member pages and see the event recording. Our live events are always free, but you have to show up during the event to see it. So that's culturomedia.com for all our live events and more. Culturomedia.com.
Chris Webster here, founder of the APN and host of several shows. I just wanted to let you know about our membership program and what it offers. Members of the APN get, for just $7.99 a month or cheaper if you pay for the year, ad-free episodes so you don't have to listen to me on the breaks, membership in our Slack team so you can continue the conversation with hosts and other members, and exclusive access to any of our live event recordings. Live events are always free, but you only get to watch the recording if you're a member. So head over to arcpodnet.com slash members for more info and to become a member. Our podcasts are always free, but this is just a little something extra and it really helps us out. That's arcpodnet.com slash members. This is Chris Webster with the APN. I'm also a project manager for several industries. I wouldn't be able to keep on track with really anything if it wasn't for Motion. With Motion, I just say what I need to do, how long I think it will take, what sort of priority I think it has, and Motion builds my day for me. It'll even build in breaks because, let's be honest, it's hard to remember to stop to eat lunch sometimes. So head over to arcpodnet.com slash motion for a free trial and a discount if you sign up. You'll kick back a small amount to the APN if you do. That's arcpodnet.com slash motion. We're back. And we're in the laboratory, the smell lab, with an absurd number of beakers, flasks, test tubes, and gently bubbling liquids. We're doing some smell science. Okay, we're not, but other people are. Let's learn about them. Stuart Eve, which comes before the more celebratory Stuartmas. Just kidding. It's a person. He's an archaeologist and augmented reality experience creator. Oh, wow. Yeah. In 2015, he wrote an article for The Atlantic about how he has been developing ways for people to see and smell the past on self-guided tours of archaeological sites or more broadly, like historic or prehistoric locations. It's not just encouraging people to wander around active dig sites, just going. Uh, I think this is a really cool outreach tool and a way for people to experience the speculative past. Quote. I'm an archaeologist, and I am particularly interested in finding out what it was like to live in the past. I'm calling the app that he's created Dead Men's Eyes, a name that comes from a short story by Montague Rhodes James, in which a man discovers a pair of old binoculars made by an eccentric antiquarian. When he looks through them, he is shown a world that no longer exists and sees grisly scenes from the past. Augmented reality is a way of merging the real world with virtual objects. It normally involves overlaying virtual objects onto live video feed from either a web camera, a head-worn display, or a mobile device. However, most currently augmented reality technology is almost entirely based around the visual experience to the detriment of the other senses. I wanted as many of these other senses to play a part in my complete experience, if possible. So, I included oral augmented reality in the form of a pair of bone-conducting headphones that played 3D geolocated sounds as I walked around the site, such as the murmured conversation taking place in a hut and the crackling of a hearth fire. By using bone-conducting headphones that don't obstruct the ear canals, I could still hear the real world, the sounds of the birds, the sheep in the distance, and wind in the trees. I also developed what I'm calling Dead Man's Nose, built using an Arduino microcontroller and a set of small computer fans, each with its own specific file of historical odor, chosen from the plethora of wonderful and weird smells available at an online fragrance shop. It was specifically linked in the article, but the link was the link was defunct, sadly. 
So I wasn't able to say, like, what are the smells? The device is worn around the neck, and the associated app is programmed to produce a specific smell, depending on your geographic location, with a fan that gently wafts it in the direction of your face. End quote. So, if you, oh, Amber, if you cool. could have a preloaded scent pack and could travel to any site to experience it in augmented visual and olfactory reality form, uh, where would you want to go? So, I'm, I'm torn between two. I would like to go to Muela, the site that I worked at. Mm-hmm. Um, that I, I would like to smell it before it burned down. <laughs> um, yeah. But maybe also while it was burning down, that could be an interesting set of smells. I, um, smoky, I imagine. Yeah. And then the other, there's some really gorgeous incense burners and stuff from there. And so I think that, um, and just sort of the layout of the site, I would just be interested to to see sort of how big it felt. Mm. Like, because if it, if you just everything was on top of each other, like, it could feel really small, but if, if you're sort of able to walk around and like the smells change and stuff, I feel that like it would make it. That's the idea anyway. Than, I'm not sure yeah. how it works exactly, but the sounds at least are geolocated. So there's a tag, like a digital yeah. tag that's like, release smell now. Yeah, no, that's that that would be really cool. Um, and then otherwise, I think that I would like to... Maybe visit the coal town that my dad was born in mm-hmm. and sort of like that generation of just seeing, being able to experience sort of the domestic landscape of a, of a coal town, a company town. Yeah. Um, because the like immigrant and first generation community, like families that were there and just to get a sense of like the diversity of what that place must have been like, um, even though it's just kind of remembered as just kind of like a homogenous block of like worker. <laughs> and I, yeah, I, I think that's what I'd like. I hope those are decent answers. Those are great answers. Oh, thanks. Yeah. What about you? I'm not sure. I What? You, you no, no, no. had all this time? I know. <laughs> I uh, No, I mean, I'm not sure what I would choose. I have several contenders um, this is my this is my brains on question i'd be like if you could travel <laughs> my name is amber <laughs> i work for kids and shows I know if you could travel to anywhere in the past and smell what it. would you want to smell <laughs> uh, i think, think you my name is amber a <laughs> <laughs> couple of things i, I would want to travel to la roselle which is a neanderthal site it's the one where it's sounds chic. It's I know it does. It sounds like a resort, but um, and it was in a way. Uh, it's a coastal oh. site, and it's one of the very few examples we have of preserved uh, Neanderthal Neanderthal footprints that show the di- the family dynamics because it's almost all kids. The footprints, so it's like oh there gosh. were clearly slightly older kids taking care of toddlers, and they were just kind of bopping around on the beach while the parents did other things. Um, yeah, so I would, I would like to see and smell and hear that. But then also, I think I would like to go somewhere where some of the first bread was being baked. Maybe not the like 14,000 year old site in Jordan where it's just sort of like a, a flat, I don't know, rock of bread, but some of the first paleo bread. (laughs) Seriously, like nuts and seeds crammed together into a, into a Rubik's cube. I just put into a... A silicone 
bread pan and then they had that and you put it out it just disintegrates yeah uh speak from experience yeah yeah i I just i would want to smell it because i love the smell of bread baking and it'd be really cool to sort of smell the some of the first yeasted yeah and to sort of like get because like if i feel like people would also want to eat it what is that yeah it's just like it's like this is everything has changed um, now we got to invent butter. So um, once we unlock the components of past smells, the next step is recreating them, right? And there are a surprising, to Anna, probably me, maybe you, a number of ongoing projects doing just that. So we're going to have a little roundup. Um, ew. Um, so this first one is from a Nautilus article, Love Nautilus, by... Um, and Sophie, uh, or Anne Sophie, Anne Sophie Barich, uh, who says, quote, launching in January 2021, Europa <laughs> is a $3.3 million, three-year multinational project on the collection and recreation of smells in the 16th to early 20th century Europe. The best smelling time. <laughs> <laughs> that will marry historical and literary analysis with machine learning and chemistry. God, sure love machine learning. Fr- frequently, machine learning doesn't involve machines. It involves basically unpaid people. Yeah. Uh, but maybe these are machine learning. Uh, okay. So the project is groundbreaking. And also, in a year of COVID-19-induced anosmia with sensory-deprived lockdowns, timely. Uh, we became aware of our need for environmental stipula- stimulation and the undervalued power of smell. That's the power of smell. So, um, the project has started off by compiling a data set that contains parts of text in English, Italian, French, German, Dutch, and Slovene uh, that have been marked by humans for references to smell. The researchers will create a catalog of past scents by digging through 250,000 images and thousands of texts, ranging from medical descriptions of smells and textbooks to labels of fragrances in novels or magazines. Machine learning will help to cross-analyze the plethora of descriptions, contexts, and currents of odor names such as tobacco, lavender, and probably horse manure. This catalog serves as the conceptual basis for perfumers and chemists to create fragrant molecules, fitting 120 of these descriptors, end quote. So for anyone who wants to get a big whiff of European smell from the past few centuries, stay tuned. Yeah. It's coming. Um, It's on the wind. Next up, we have the International Perfume Museum. Uh, Plenty of people throughout ancient history have sought to disguise or alter their own scent with manufactured scents. And the IPM showcases that history, plus soaps and cosmetics, because they're all related. Um, So this one isn't so much about recreating scents, but there's a quote that we wanted to share as food for thought. Quote, some civilizations were not and are still not, affected by the globalization of perfume. It is the same today. In Oceania, people rub their body and hair with plants selected for their fragrance. 
Asia is still synonymous with floral offerings, as fresh flowers are everywhere in secular and religious life. Scent has a power of seduction and purification. Bodily practices associated with fragrance uh, constituted a model for social life in the UAE. Gradually in China, scents played a role as a personality marker, as was already the case in the West. Perfume was a product with therapeutic, aesthetic, and ritual value. Uh, it was an accessory for seduction or eroticism. It was a way to celebrate the gods, a method of purification. In 18th century Africa, the art of perfumery you know, was linked to the major... The major coastal towns of East Africa, but also to an ambiguous Africa, mysterious and primitive. Perfumes and preparations based on odiferous plants still contributed very differently to magical and therapeutic strategies in both rural and urban areas. End quote. Pick up the phone. It's Edward Said. <laughs> because one of the things that comes along with tying fragrance to a place and time, or perhaps a place and timelessness, yeah. um, is the tendency to exoticize the smells associated with the other. And for the Western intellectual world, as we've discussed before, okay, let's say that, it's the Orient. <laughs> and perhaps the most exoticized source of information is Egypt. And Western Asia more broadly, like Persia, is all research into the smells of the ancient Egyptian world orientalizing? No. But the, but often the media characterization and public response drags it there anyway. And like the marketing team. Yep. So I want to, um, Enter I want to talk resident about, perfume expert. Yeah. So I want to talk a little bit about perfumes. And so, uh, when I said like, is there an episode this week? What's happening? And Anna was like, I have a job for you. And so it was I a fun job. S- yeah. So I went to Sephora, but also I have, I got some stuff to share. Fragrances. So perfumes kind of generally have like these big, like big camps of type of fragrance. You've got like, you've got top notes, you've got base notes, you've got accords. Like there are all these different ways that, that categorize the elements of the perfume. There's a whole taxonomy of scent. Yeah, Yeah. exactly. Because most perfumes are composed. Like they're they're different compounds that produce smells that you use in conjunction with one another. And there are the, the way that it's it's body chemistry and physiology, but also the stuff in it. So a a good perfume, like a high quality perfume, is something that when you first smell it, you are approached by top notes. That's the stuff that like kind of hits you first, like when you sniff it or when you spray it and step into it or you put it on or you put it on your body, depending on what type of perf- like what means you're getting the perfume through. Um, so those are the those are the top notes. And then and then it's supposed to open up into something a bit more complex. And then there's there's the stuff that is and so the top notes will fade because they are more volatile, they're usually lighter, mm-hmm. and then it gives way to something. And this then is because of your body, as, as it uh, affects yeah, and the then, compounds. And then there's something that sort of remains. Um, and so a high-quality perfume uh, 
is considered to be something that has like a narrative. Some producers are absolutely bonkers with this stuff. Like there's some that just like absolutely wild out and just like, okay, calm down. But there are major classifications to to perfumes because to, to sort of attract different type of people. So those are usually uh, floral, clean, wood, woody. Um, mm-hmm. So you would have like warm woody or uh, warm floral or cool floral or or clean. Gotcha. Clean floral, bright floral. Uh, but then you have like woody oriental. Oriental ah. is the other category. And so... Oriental, as a description for fragrance, was first used in 1925. That's later than I thought. The The vibe was there and like the themes were there. And so um, the Oriental refers to like spicier scents. So it includes vanilla, uh, cinnamon, uh, coumarin, tonka bean, gum resins. And so that includes your, your frankincense, your myrrh, and your labdanum. Oud and sandalwood. Oud is another type of wood. Um, oud is also a little stringed instrument. Yeah. Uh, yeah. But that's a oud. That's different. Different. Oh, okay. Di- different. But to English tongues, same. Not same though. But as, as well as ingredients that approximate those warm scents. So it's something kind of warm and spicy. Like that's, mm-hmm. so, uh, full disclosure, I know a lot about this because that is my, my profile. Um, also because I am nothing if not self involved. And so I like ambery scents. <laughs> I, it's like part of my personal branding. Um, so, as I said, 1925 was the first time that this was used, and it was first used by Guerlain, and the perfume it was used on was Shalomar. Um, and so it was launched in 1925 in Paris at the International Exhibition of Decorative Arts. Um, and so I can, um, if I remember, I will include a video, a YouTube video. It's Guerlain talking about the story of Shalimar. But in it, the brand describes the fragrance as oriental for, quote, because its suave gourmand notes recall the sweet balsams of the lands of the 1001 nights, end quote. Um, so gourmand is another, that's that's one where it's like, odd, kind of like, odd word like, for smell. Kind of fruity, like it's, it's, huh, it's okay. sort of like sumptuous, like kind of like where it's, indulgent. It's, yeah, those Which like is... gourmand, like that's kind of chocolatey, like mm. you can have. So there's also like overlap among all these yeah, things. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, because that's why they go together. Um, yeah, yeah. And you, you can kind of uh, pick and choose what works for you and then you can identify the right scent for you. I, I mean, if you buy into any of this and don't have like multiple chemical sensitivity, like that's... Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so this it's is, sort of, we're just, yeah. um, we're just but, learning here. So Guerlain also says the fragrance is oriental, quote, through its inspiration... Um, and so, uh, Chalamar, uh, Jacques and Raymond, uh, Guerlain were the guys who were running Guerlain, like the design house. Um, and some guy, a Maharaja, allegedly, was visiting Paris and told them the story of the gardens of Chalamar, mm-hmm. which is where the fifth Mughal emperor, um, Shah Jahan and his wife 
who was Persian, Mumtaz Mahal. Um, that, that's where they were in love. And that's... She died. He built the Taj Mahal. The Taj Mahal. Yeah. Yeah. So, like, very, like, broad Eastern strokes yeah. to this. Um, it's definitely but, painting a, a sensory picture. So, so that's the description. And so there, you know, there's, you say like, okay, it was like a hundred years ago. Stuff's changed. They probably updated their branding. Tell me more. I'm going to read to you from uh, Sephora. (laughs) So this is the entry. So the note. Okay. So here we go. Uh, So for Shalimar, a still existing perfume. Specifically. Yeah. Specifically Shalimar. Okay. Um, So the notes are bergamot, powder, iris, vanilla, amber. Okay. It's all nice. Style, Lovely. voluptuous, mm-hmm. warm, sensual. Mm-hmm. That's something that I'd be like, I will sniff this. <laughs> um, so, <laughs> um, so, yeah, full disclosure here, folks. I generally wear Tom Ford perfumes and I checked Black Orchid because Black Orchid is a like, cl- like a modern classic of the Oriental uh, perfume. And uh, Tom Ford does not use that language. Did you see my dog just emerge from the cockles of the earth and then get into a princess bed? Yes, I did. (laughs) Uh, So about the product, the queen of exotic oriental perfumery, this beautifully feminine fragrance is an everlasting classic. Its voluptuous base of powdery sweet vanilla embraces warm notes of incense and amber. Opulent and tenacious, the seductive appeal of Shalimar endures. Today, Jade Jagger, the English <laughs> artist, jewelry designer, and socialite, has reinterpreted the celebrated Shalimar bottle. As she would carve a precious stone, Jagger formed the cap into the shape of a fan, adding a glamorous modern touch to the iconic flasson. The love between an Indian emperor and his cherished wife, Mumtaz Mahal, flourished in the beautiful gardens of Shalimar. Devastated by her untimely death, the emperor built a mausoleum that would later become one of the great wonders of the world, the Taj Mahal. Touched by this beautiful love story, Jacques Herlan created Shalimar, the world's first oriental fragrance. Um, So that is, (laughs) that's like, that's the classic one. Yeah. And so I went through and I found, um, I, I looked. So what I did last night <laughs> was I went through all of the perfumes on Sephora that were categorized as uh, Oody or Ambery mm-hmm. or Sandalwoody. I went through all the spicy Woody ones. And so I want to just share two more, okay. like two more like classic examples of this. First, we have um, Yves Saint Laurent. And I figured that this would be really interesting because um, Yves Saint Laurent spent a lot of his adult life in Marrakesh. So this is opium. It's in the floral fragrance family. Scent type, warm floral. Notes of tangerine, plum, cloves, coriander, carnation, lily of the valley, rose, myrrh, apopanax, castoreum, um, cedarwood, and sandalwood. And it's an enchanting, mysterious, and intriguing fragrance inspired by the Orient. And so about the product. Rarely in the history of fragrance has a creation embodied such enchantment, mystery, magic, and exoticism. 
Introduced in 1977, opium symbolizes Yves Saint Laurent's fascination with the Orient and his unique understanding of a woman's hidden emotions and inexplicable passions. Opium arouses the senses with an exotic blend of lush florals, rich spices, and deep wood notes. Um, and then the last one that I want to share is um, John Barbados's Oud. And its style is oriental, rich, sensual. And its notes are sweet tobacco, levantine cypress, hyssop, clary sage, juniper berries, Persian saffron, royal cinnamon louse, uh, malabar pepper, Sri Lanka cardamom, Zanzibar clove bud, osmanthus absolute, Turkish rose absolute, Egyptian jasmine absolute, Ooh, authentic oud oil, Lebanese cedarwood, Andalusian, Labdanum, Myrrh, Apopanax, <laughs> Frankincense, Black Leather, and Amber. So really laying it all out of, there, John Barbados. A lot of but layers. My goodness. Hideous bottle. Oh. To my eye. Um, and about the product. John Barbados Oud looks back in time to weave together oriental references of perfumery with the deeply mysterious presence of Oud oil. How'd it get there? The sensual blend of traditional yet modern aromas cloaks the wearer with a rich, long-lasting signature. Oud is housed in the iconic John Varvatos flask bottle, now in a rich black glass and wrapped in gold mesh, inspired by the mesh on a microphone. What? The bottle mixes luxury with a touch of rock and roll. Oh. Um, so yeah, so that's, um, so I just wanted to share those things a little bit about the history of Oriental in perfumery mm -hmm. and also the um like the international whomever whomever for perfume perfumey whatever um they don't like it they don't like that word they um they 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 recommend sort of using the actual notes that mean something yeah um because you can't just say oriental when there are perfume traditions that are uh, complex and varied across an entire continent. Yeah. Thank you. That was Perfume Corner. And now from a May 2022 article in Science News. Quote, Ramses VI faced a smelly challenge when he became Egypt's king in 1145 BCE. The new pharaoh's first job was to rid the land of the stench of fish and birds, denizens of the Nile Delta's fetid swamps. I get it. That at any rate, was the instruction in a hymn written to Ramses VI upon his ascension to the throne. <laughs> hey, King. Love what you did. <laughs> Love what you did with the fish smell. <laughs> Surviving written accounts indicate that, perhaps unsurprisingly, residents of ancient Egyptian cities encountered a wide array of nice and nasty odors. Depending on the neighborhood, citizens inhaled smells of sweat, disease, cooking meat, incense, trees, and flowers. Egypt's hot weather heightened demand for perfumed oils and ointments that cloaked bodies in pleasant smells. And just to uh, sidebar here for a sec, um, sometimes in Egyptian paintings, you'll see people with little sort of red and white cones on their heads. And those are scented fats that would sort of melt and drip in the heat as you were at a party and gradually just sort of coat you in perfume. Sounds so that's real? Sticky. So I think so. Because there have been some, well, we'll get there, but there have been some okay. molecular studies of containers that seem to contain sort of fat-based scent. So that was yeah, a thing. I, I don't know about like, the head part. 
the yeah, cone like that always part. struck me as one of those things that right? like you learn when you're four, yes. and then like turns out it was always BS, and like nobody just has confronted it because it's so. I wouldn't so be surprised if if that is true, but the paintings are real. So yeah, but also there are paintings where like there's somebody holding Wi-Fi. Yeah, well, take that you up know. with the aliens. A growing array of biomolecular techniques is enabling the identification of molecules from ancient aromatic substances preserved in cooking pots and other containers, in debris from city garbage pits, in tartar caked on human teeth, and even in mummified remains. Take the humble incense burner, for instance. I will, thank you. For incense. Finding an ancient incense burner indicates only that a substance of some kind was burned. Unraveling... <laughs> Good. <laughs> Terminus post flame. <laughs> Unraveling the molecular makeup of residue clinging to such a find can determine what exactly was burned and reconstruct whether it was the scent of frankincense, myrrh, scented woods, or blends of different aromatics, says archaeologist Barbara Huber. That sort of detective work is exactly what Huber of the Max Planck Institute for the Science of Human History in Jena, Germany, and her colleagues did in research on the walled oasis settlement of Taima, in what's hey. now Saudi Arabia. The desert, hey. hey! The desert outpost's residents purchased aromatic plants for their own uses during much of the settlement's history. Chemical and mole molecular analyses of charred resins identified frankincense in cube-shaped incense burners, previously unearthed in Taima's residential quarter, myrrh in cone-shaped incense burners that had been placed in graves outside the town wall, and an aromatic substance from Mediterranean mastic trees in small goblets used as incense burners in a large public building. Egyptologist Dora Goldsmith and historian Sean Coughlin of the Czech Academy of Sciences in Prague have tried to recreate a celebrated Egyptian fragrance known as the Mendesian perfume. Cleopatra, a perfume devotee during her reign as queen from 51 to 30 BCE, may have doused herself with this scented potion. The perfume took its city, I'm sorry, the perfume took its name from the city where it was made, Mendes. Excavations conducted since 2009 at Tmuis, a city founded as an extension of Mendes, have uncovered the roughly 2,300-year-old remains of what was probably a fragrance factory, including kilns and clay perfume containers. Archaeologist Robert Littman of the University of Hawaii at Manoa and anthropological archaeologist Jay Silverstein of the University of Tumen in Russia, who direct the Tmuis dig, asked Goldsmith and Coughlin to try to crack the Mendesian perfume code by consulting ancient writings. After experimenting with ingredients that included desert date oil, myrrh, cinnamon, and pine resin, Goldsmith and Coughlin produced a scent that they suspect approximates what Cleopatra probably wore. It's a strong but pleasant, long-lasting blend of spiciness and sweetness, they say. So that article that um, that I was quoting from in Science News is is long and it's fantastic and it goes on to describe ancient Egyptian smellscapes and lots of other research. It's like a really cool compilation of things people are doing to get at how these this world smelled um so check out the show notes to dive into that yeah if you're interested i highly yeah. recommend it and you can check that out instead of hermes en jardin sur le nil they've got one that's supposed to smell like a a garden on us on on, on us. one that's okay 
As long yeah. as it doesn't smell like fish and birds. It's... I know. That's what I, kinda, I hope that I hope that Hermes is just like, smells like fish poop. <laughs> smells um, like okay. a Delta. So let's take one more <laughs> ad break. And then there's the final couple sniffs of the past. Mm. Hey, fans of APN Podcasts. We've got lots of designs over at our Tee Public store. Every purchase helps out the APN with a few cents back to us. Check out the high-quality t-shirts, stickers, phone cases, coffee mugs, and a lot more. There are lots of colors to choose from in most of those items, and TeePublic often runs 30% discounts. So check out the store at arcpodnet.com slash shop. That's arcpodnet.com slash shop, and click on the link. All right, we're back. One last whiff. Um, and we have one more example of experiencing smells from the past. And then also the fragrance fragrance industry just taking it a little too far. Not even a little. Uh, so the <laughs> the resin of a few species of trees and shrubs indigenous to Mezzo in South America was and still is used as a fragrant incense known as copal. Uh, so I'm going to quote from a 2019 Thought Co. article uh, written by anthropologist K. Chris Hurst. Quote. Resins were considered the blood of trees. The versatile resin was also used as a binder for pigments used on Maya murals. In the Hispanic period, copal was used in the lost wax technique of making jewelry. The 16th century Spanish friar uh, Bernardino de Sahagun, uh, he reported that the Aztec people used copal as makeup, adhesives for masks, and in dentistry, where copal was mixed with calcium phosphate to affix precious stones to teeth. Oh, nice. Uh, copal was also used as a chewing gum and a medicine for various ailments, end quote. Um, so as incense, copal has a smoky, duh, and sweet aroma and was used so ubiquitously in religious and manufacturing contexts that its smell would likely have been a fixture of life in Aztec or Maya cities. So along with other smells of people living closely together, plus animals, plus markets full of foods, cook fires, and many other smells that I didn't mention here, Copal would have tickled the noses of residents. Um, and it's Copal, that is the exotic factor. So ancient places have general smells of people and animals in common. Um, some of the food smells might have been similar, but Copal is somewhat unique because of, and because of that, it has become a signifier for the flattened concepts of Aztec, Maya, exotic jungle culture in the same way that oud and frankincense and myrrh smell at Laban, smell <laughs> Easter. Uh, so to put a fine point on it, it has and has a little nod back to the Apocalypto episode and something that I didn't get from it. Uh, <laughs> here's a profile of a perfume called Ancient Maya Jaguar Blend. Can I, can I read this? Oh, absolutely. Because I want you to, to experience it. Okay. okay. An exotic ancient Mayan incense recipe of gold copal, black copal, white copal, tolu balsam, and pure vanilla bean is a calming, mystical, balsamic recipe that strokes the senses and imagination and fills the evening with sensuality. Oh, wow. The jaguar was revered for its unique method of enticing prey as it hid among the bushes with its sweet-scented breath. Okay, pause, because I looked into that. I don't think that's a thing. 
Do you know they bite you in the brain? Jaguars do, like, rather they than go for the head. Like, crushing the windpipe, like many big cats yeah. and small cats, they chomp your brain. Huh. They do have very strong jaws. So mm-hmm. what I looked into was the, the biological idea that jaguar might have, like, a uniquely scented breath. And I came to the conclusion that if they're, they're cats, like, if it's anything like my cat, their breath smells nasty. But... <laughs> your cat is exceptionally stinky she's so stinky but like she eats kitty food not live prey so like that would also probably smell pretty bad but what i don't know is if in aztec maya question mark mythology if the jaguar is supposed to have perfumed breath and if so why where did that come from how how perfume because like i would say that my dog has perfumed breath in the sense that it is scented yes no so it's sweet scented breath so i'm continuing the description the prey would naturally investigate the source of the aroma thus bringing it closer to the jaguar right so like if it smelled like dead meat a prey animal will probably be like i will go the other way right yeah yeah because it's not like do i smell leaves yeah (laughs) cultures of ancient america prized copal resin as a sacred incense ingredient the ancient mayan holy book i mean i guess that's not like an inaccurate statement it's not it's just so very vague (laughs) the ancient mayan holy book okay says that the yeah says that the divine god of the earth extracted copal resin from the tree of life and gave it to humans as a gift used in small amounts the Earth God didn't say use in small amounts. They said about this perfume, use in small amounts. Like the Holy Book doesn't say a little dab will do you. Yeah. Spray, delay, and walk away. That's... And I want to clarify just about... Because I ha- it's... The description of copal as resin is, is very vague because it copal resin can be sourced from several different kinds of... Uh, resinous trees and shrubs so there's so like the gold one the black one the white one I, or maybe these are all just like different like go- um, pepper <laughs> black I pepper was white pepper like, I was thinking like in like karate oh <laughs> like, different grades of yeah of resin no it's just um, depending on what you have around that's the kind of copal you get so is this like something you can buy? Is this like it is? Actually... I didn't link to it because I didn't I didn't want it in the show notes because it's like you can look it up. Um, but listeners, we encourage you to take what you've learned from us over the past several episodes, and in fact, over our past entire catalog about fetishizing the past and current cultures, Orientalism and cultural relativism, and apply it to that little nugget. So we're, gi- we're giving you building blocks here. And so with that, we will wrap up the episode. We need to go huff some coffee beans to get our noses back to normal. This sucks. I know. So this whole... That's why I didn't include the link. Yep. This place offers aromatic treasures from ancient lands. Yep. Thanks for listening, everybody. We will be back in your ears, probably not your noses, uh, next week with some new... I'm not getting in your nose. Nope. With some new content. And until then, you can find back episodes at thedirtpod.com, where you can also find resources for educators and merch and the link to sponsor an episode and the link to Pass the Mic, our small grants program. 
And you can also find us on social media. On Facebook, we're The Dirt Podcast. On Twitter, we're at Dirt Podcast. And on Instagram, we're at The Dirt Pod. And all of those are fed to our website, thedirtpod.com. If you don't want to go on the sites individually, go check it out. And thank you so much, everybody. Thank you for listening. We'll smell you later. Goodbye. Bye. This episode was produced by Chris Webster from his RV traveling the United States, Tristan Boyle in Scotland, DigTech LLC, Cultural Media, and the Archaeology Podcast Network. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archpodnet.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. Thanks for listening to this podcast. Please consider leaving a review on your favorite podcasting app. You could also consider becoming a member so we can keep content like this free and available to all. Check out pricing and info at archpodnet.com slash members. Thanks again and have a great day.